0: Well, when I talked to Shaila about this, this topic, we sort of kicked some ideas around and came up with the, with the idea that, uh, of what the Buddha didn't teach, and of course, what he did. But one of the reasons for doing this is that, that there's no truth in labeling in spiritual teaching. So you, you know, there's no, somebody gives, gives an evening talk, there's no label that says this is 40% Buddha Dharma, Twenty percent Christian mysticism, twenty percent New Age Spiritism, and twenty percent bullshit. I mean, they're, and they're all it's all presented of a piece, and um, sometimes when those pieces uh, are in conflict, but presented from the same chair or in the same contexts, um, confusion. And then you're not quite sure whether you're supposed to be striving for a better incarnation so you get a better shot at awakening or enlightenment, or whether your job is to work on abandoning uh, greed, hatred, and delusion in the present moment and become free, which may be different things. So. What I want to talk about are, are some of the things that, are, that show up in the midst of Dharma teachings. Um, and I rely, just as my own disclaimer, I rely um, on the, the texts of the Pali Canon, as uh, of course, as I understand them. So um, you can take that for what that's worth uh, as we go through. And also my understanding of the social scene in which the Buddha taught. Some of the Pali Canon, some of the elements of the Pali Canon are pretty old and there are, and it started actually forming during the Buddha's lifetime. There's parts of this, uh, the Sutta nipata there's a section where the Buddha asks a monk to recite some of the Sutta nipata So the Sutta nipata existed already within the Buddha's lifetime and then the, the canon continued to be assembled after the Buddha's death and didn't really close for a 300 years or so. And the result is things got were getting added in. And sometimes they were recollections of what the Buddha taught, and sometimes perhaps not. Um, but today, and, and by I don't mean with malice or any intention, people are trying to help clarify or, or uh, whatever. In the same way, yeah, in, our, in our current... Um, In our current teachings, we get sometimes a mix. So what I wanted to do is to start by talking about what the Buddha didn't teach. The Buddha didn't teach philosophy. He didn't teach uh, ideas about how things... Well, he taught about how things are, but he didn't teach metaphysical systems uh, that would explain how things are. This is a a section where... um, a guy named Putta came to the, to the Buddha and he, um, and he, he asked him this. this is the, I'm gonna, I'll just read some of it so you get a flavor. Uh, These speculative views have been undeclared by the Blessed One, he said. The world is eternal, or the world is not eternal, or the world is finite, or the world is infinite. The soul is the same as the body, and the soul is one thing, and the body another thing. You know, after death, the Tathagata exists, and after death, the Tathagata doesn't exist. You know, he's basically going through the metaphysical question, what is going on? You know, what is this? And we, like, we want that. You know, we, we're looking for that. We want something that we can cling to as a explanation for all this stuff, you know? Um, but the Buddha, the Buddha says, suppose, Malankyaputta, a man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison and his friends and companions, his, his kinsmen and relatives brought a surgeon to treat him. The man would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out the arrow until I know whether the man who wounded me was noble or a Brahmin, or a merchant, or a worker. And he would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know the name and clan of the man who wounded me, until I know whether the man who wounded me was tall or short. You get the picture. You know Whether the man who wounded me lives in one village or a town or a city, until I knew whether the bow that wounded me was a longbow or a crossbow, And all this would still not be known to that man, and meanwhile he would die. You know, Western philosophy has been chugging along for, what do you want to say, 2,500 years or so, and pretty bright people working at some of these, you know, trying to figure it out. We're probably not going to figure it out, but there are a lot of metaphysical, uh, teachings that are offered as the way the what the buddha meant. So for example, the buddha never said whether all of this experience is just in our mind or whether there's something out there that we encounter. He never addressed that. The mind the the mind only school them because they wanted a cosmology. I mean, we want a cosmology. We go for the Big Bang, but they went for mind only, and then they had to deal with, you know, the ramifications of that. The Theravadins took a different position, which is, there's a sense organ, there's a sense object. When there's contact, there's consciousness. So the Theravadins have a different. Well, which is, well, you know, is the bow a crossbow? Is the bow, you know, is it a candy mint or is it a breath mint? Yeah. You know, I guess that dates me, huh? Um, uh, the uh, Japanese Zen master, Joshu, said, the way does not belong to knowing or not knowing. To know is to have a concept. To not know is to be ignorant. If you truly know the way of no doubt, it is like the sky, wide open and vast emptiness. Everything, you know, if we're trying to come up with some philosophy of how things are. There is reincarnation, there isn't reincarnation. John is good for you, John is not so good for you. I mean, you know, anybody run into these kind of conversations in our, in our circles? Um, Buddha would say that's not the point. Those are distractions. And while you're trying to resolve those issues you will continue to suffer and eventually you'll die before you, you uh, uh, check things out. So it's, it's the, Buddha, the Buddhist teachings are not about concepts or conceptual knowledge. In fact, I'm going to talk a little bit about why I, I just thought of this uh, while I was visiting a little bit before. So, and it was such a punchy phrase, so I'm, I'm going to say there's nothing noble about the Four Noble Truths. You know, the, the Noble Truths, from the point of view of the Buddha, are ennobling truths, and actually the scholars, the Pali scholars say this is a better translation, because when these truths are understood, they ennoble one. But there's nothing in and of themselves that make them holy or, or noble. You can cling to those and, uh, you know, argue with someone who thinks there ought to be five noble truths, if we want, but the Buddha's point is, and the translation of Arya is that these are ennobling truths, they ennoble one who has understood them. So it's, it's it's not a philosophy, it's not a metaphysical construct of the way things are that the Buddha taught, even though those things you hear Stuff you know, you get metaphors about the ocean and the waves, and the right? I mean, we, those things show up. Buddha was not concerned about that. One of the other things that's not uh, that's not in the canon at all: forgiveness practice. Anybody work on that? You know, it gets presented alongside the Dharma. It gets presented in in Dharma contexts. Um, I was looking at, at Jack Kornfield's latest book, the one that just came out, I don't know, past week or so. There's a chapter on the art of forgiveness. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with forgiveness, but it's not in the Pali canon. It's not one of the teachings that the, that the Buddha offered. But it sort of crept in. It's a, you know, it, comes, it comes in out of, well, it's a, it's a drift in our Christian culture. And I, I do some teaching at... Uh, at uh, Fulsome prison pretty regularly, and a lot of the men there, it's a maximum security prison. A lot of the men there are concerned about their, their somehow, they ask about forgiveness and karma a lot because a lot of them are suffering with remorse of some kind or other. And I explain to them that forgiveness is, you know, from the Buddhist standpoint, who is there who could forgive? You know? um, to say it's okay when, you know, when, uh, I mean, basically that's what we're saying. It's okay. Somebody bumps into you accidentally and you say, it's okay, forgiven, no problem. You think somebody bumps into you intentionally and you go, hey, what, what's that? You know? And then maybe not so much the forgiveness, you know? But from what I what I teach there is that the Buddha's teaching was about compassion, and that it was also about fully embracing the uh, the experience that uh, and the intention that led to the to whatever whatever is causing your suffering. Basically, your intention. That's you know the Buddha says that's your karma. Karma isn't what happens to you; it's what you. Make yourself into, so you're living with that intention that led to uh, pain and suffering. The only the, the way out, the way to salvation, if, as, as it were for, from the Buddhist standpoint, would be to fully embrace your own the responsibility for your own intentions, and you can resolve, never again, no matter what. And then you can be free.. You know? And it doesn't obliterate the memory and it doesn't say it's okay. It's just that, you know, never again. So the Buddha would address that issue of, of remorse ra- rather than through forgiveness. I think the effort there in some of our practices is try to um, help let go of grudges and uh, things in ourselves. Um. And I could I could talk a little bit about how that works but I'm going to move on to the next thing that's not in the canon which is gratitude practice. Gratitude is just thank you. It can be thank you. It can really be thank you. Oh my gosh, thank you. But it's not a sentiment. You know, and the Buddha doesn't talk about gratitude practice. I can see how acknowledging the things that are positive in our life um, that we can address them and, and think thank you. But it's not necessarily a sentiment uh, to cultivate. Um, one of the other things that are not in the, that the Buddha didn't teach. He didn't teach the oneness of all things. You know that joke about the Buddha and the hot dog vendor? You know what? What did the Buddha say to the hot dog vendor? Make me one with everything. <laughs> yeah. And then I just heard recently. I was t- I told that that somewhere, and somebody added that the the uh, um, the the Buddha says that to the hot dog. And where's my change? And the B- vendor says, change comes from within. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's. There's really only one that, and, but those are you know, are those dharma jokes? I don't know. Um, change change happens. I don't know whether it comes from within or without. The only the only good Dharma joke that I that I know is I mean, as a joke of the Buddha, well there's the Dalai Lama opening as present with that's empty, the present body is just what I wanted, nothing. But the, but it's why can't the Buddha vacuum in corners? Because he has no attachments. Now that's <laughs> not, So, so, you know, that's, that's now that's Dharma humor. <laughs> but becoming one with everything is the philosophy of, of the Advaita uh, the, uh, and, and Brahmanical um, uh, priests of the time. At the time, the notion was, the universe is suffused by a one, a single spirit, Brahman. Brahman. And each of us has within ourselves a spark of that divine oneness. We are part, like the waves on an ocean. We are part of the ocean, though we appear separate. We're a part of the whole unit. The Buddha didn't do that. That's not in there. That's actually Advaita philosophy, which was very prevalent. I mean, is the prevailing uh, ideas um, at the time that the Buddha was teaching. And you can see how it might have crept back into some of the texts, but even not so much. It, uh, it just got taught alongside. And um, you know, the, uh, in, in the, the Brahmanical tradition, the Atman and the Brahman were the same thing. So whether you look inward or outward, you came to find the same Brahman. The Buddha said, anatta, no Atman. And in fact, you know, this is one of the things that he, that he actually did teach. Anicca, dukkha, anatta, anatta. He didn't teach, he didn't teach in the canon, he didn't teach attaining to something transcendent. To something, there's, there are phrases in the, in the canon where the Buddha talks about the unconditioned. And the word in the phrase is a is a noun phrase. And so you think, well, it's a thing. Um, And people think that the unconditioned is a thing, the unborn, the you know, he's got a bunch of synonyms for it. Nibbana is said to be the unconditioned. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. The Buddha says, Bhikkhus, I will teach you the unconditioned and the path leading to the unconditioned. Listen. And what, Bhikkhus, is the unconditioned? The destruction of greed, the destruction of hatred, and the destruction of delusion. This is called the unconditioned. It's what is, it's experience unconditioned by greed, hatred, and delusion. It's not uncaused. I spent years trying to figure out how could something if it's uncaused but continues to exist it has to exist all the time forever eternal never changing data you know and, and then in which case how would i know it because my the sense data that i've got is as you might have noticed a little bit transient <laughs> you know it's nothing stays in place um, So, you know, he's, and what is the path leading to the unconditioned mindfulness directed to the body? This is, so he begins his teachings, but he's not teaching about some transcendental entity. Now, there are, there are uh, teachers who teach that nibbana is something transcendental. It's not so much in the Pali canon. The, um, in the canon, you could interpret it, and people do, Including me, as as a cycle of a profound uh, psychological transformation. So it's just uh, you know, but but both perspectives are out there. Some not present in the canon, and some present, or some present all throughout the the canon, and an occasional reference, uh, one or two citations. It's not about. Realizing pure awareness, you know, and and this is something that comes with the Tibetan teachings. But pure awareness is never spoken of. Awareness or consciousness for the Buddha is a dependently originated state. It depends on a sense organ, it depends on an object and contact between them. And then you get eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, and mind consciousness at the six sense doors, but it's dependently originated. Why can't I say that? Dependently originated. It doesn't exist separate from an object as the Buddha describes it in the canon. But in some some teachings, sometimes just for uh, skillful means purposes, to try to, as a as a uh, as a meditation um, uh, tool to imagine spaciousness and objectless awareness, um, but still you're aware you've got some idea of objectless awareness. There's there's no in for the Buddha in the in the canon. There's no consciousness. Um, without an object. And I'm not saying that these, there's anything wrong with these things. These are ideas, uh, but the Buddha was not about ideas. You know, you can debate the ideas until the poison finally gets to you, or you just scroll and die on your own <laughs> Without it. Um, so these things are these things are often presented as par- alongside with or as part of the Dharma, and they may many of them may be helpful. Forgiveness practice may be helpful, particularly the way we, uh, you know, if it's we may find it helps it helps us or envisioning ourselves as one with all things. Uh, but that's envisioning again. What was the Buddha talking about? Now, I put in a, a bookmark, ah, it fell down and I almost lost it. This is from the Sudha Napata. He said, I'd seen people all trapped in mutual conflict, and that is why I had felt so repelled. But then I noticed something buried deep in their hearts. I could just make it out, a dart, sometimes translated as a thorn. It's a dart or a thorn that makes its victims run all over the place. But once it's been pulled out, all that running is finished, and so is the exhaustion that comes with it. And that dart, of course, is, is dukkha. And the, the origin of dukkha, what gives rise to dukkha. Hmm. The four, no, the four Ennobling Truths, uh, Ayakema, Sister Ayakema used to say, everything else besides the Four Ennobling Truths is excess dharma. Really, the Buddha on, on the night of his awakening had one insight. You know, he's reported through the three watches of the night. He first watched to have recounted and relived all his past lives not particular insight it's just an assertion of a particular metaphysical condition that we've got past lives Um, but it can but according to to um, uh, linguistic scholars the translation can be different i mean each of us has had a past life i've been a child i've been a a student i've been a father i've been a you know a, a boss and a Oh, an employee. I've had. I've been friends. We've each of us had a different life, many. So you could, rec- you could. Apparently, it can be interpreted that way. I'm not a poly scholar myself, but I can listen to some of the the people who've looked at that. So I'm not urging you to take the that one way or the other. But it's not a particular insight it may may incline you to believe in a, in a in a cosmology that includes multiple lives, but. Maybe not necessarily. The second, the second uh, watch of the night he's recorded to have, uh, or reported to have uh, seen the arising and passing of all beings in accord with their karma, which is a wonderful insight, but it's in the third watch of the night where he, saw, he understood the Four Noble Truths, or the Four Ennobling Truths. And from my understanding, the four nobling truths, that's what the Buddha taught. He says, in the Majjhima, he says, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Now, the four. Are you, anybody not familiar with the four noble truths, I refer to them. And anybody not, not know, because I can, I can cover them really quick. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Uh, a bhikkhu without clinging attains nibbana. The Four Noble Truths is really one insight. It's a single insight, as I understand it. It's, it's, if you understand dukkha, the first, the first noble truth is that dukkha exists, the existence of dukkha. If you underst- and, and in his first sermon, he's reported to have said um, that the, that first truth is to be understood. If you fully understood dukkha, You'd understand the conditions which gave rise to it as well, and you would understand then just how to go about not not generating it. So you would understand the eight, understanding the first fully brings along the second, the third, and the fourth of the truths. So it's it's all it's just one insight into the nature of dukkha and the and the origin of dukkha of suffering. Um, and the origin of suffering. There's there's a um, Well, let me let me just run through them quickly because there's the first truth is just the is the truth of suffering being part of the package. Anybody here just getting the good stuff? No. It's not just you and it's not your fault. This is the condition of life. And if we understand it, the Buddha says, we can be free of, of, that, of the dissatisfaction. Not free of the pain. The dart may still hit us, but we're, we're going to be free of the struggling to try to make sense of it. We'll just pull it out. The second... The second truth is the truth of the origin of dukkha, which is a kind of thirsting, tanha, which is which is is translated as an unquenchable thirst. It's not like you can have a drink of water and then you're okay for a while. One one bit of tanha passes, and the next it's it it constantly. There's always something to let go of because tanha is always. Always being generated, and then of course, if you if you the the, the uh, instruction with tanha is that you are to abandon it, to just to just not take it up. Tanha are the impulses to want something that will fulfill you, that will make things okay, that w- that will f- that will overcome the sense of lack that we have in our, in our lives. When we see clearly the nature of dukkha and the nature of tanha, then the cessation, the freedom from tanha is possible. Because although that impulse of, uh, of greed, of longing, wanting, or of irritation, aversion, anger, may arise, we just let it arise and pass. We don't take it up. And we're free from them. Otherwise, we're just slaves to the, to, you know, the, the greed or the, the uh, anger that arises within us. And we do we have much control of that? Not so much. I mean, when you close your eyes to follow your breath, you probably noticed your mind as, as this uh, teacher we, I spent some time with this weekend said, your mind you find has a mind of its own. You know. And, Anger can flash before you even, when you get cut off on the freeway, anger can show up before you even, you don't say, well, this situation calls for a little anger. (laughs) I think I will express it in, I'll honk my horn. That's it. No, maybe not. We don't do that. It just comes up and it's fast. And of course the Eightfold Path, I am not a big fan of the word of, of the word path, because it suggests something that's going somewhere, and then you're going to get there. And I've I've heard this teaching that the path to the Grand Canyon is not the Grand Canyon, and the path to Nibbana is not Nibbana. But, you know, if you understood dukkha fully, its causes, its origins and and Um, you would know the way to its cessation and the way of conduct, the way of living. So the Eightfold Path is not a path, it's a way of being. It's the Eightfold Way of Being, and it's not the Onefold Way of Being. It's not like a basketball. You can say, okay, I got this basketball here. It's It's about 18 inches across. Anybody, you know, they weigh about a couple pounds. It's made of rubber. It's brown. It's got a little little dimples on it. It's filled with air to a certain way. So much, that's the eightfold basketball. But it's a ba- one basketball. You can't just say, "Well, I think I'll go for the brown and leave out the rest." You know, it's a path. Uh, it's the way of being that leads to or that abandons dukkha. And of course. And so the the Buddha's insight, what he taught, he says, I taught, I teach, suffering and the end of suffering. And a lot of the techniques that he offers are all aimed at that. Suggestions and and invitations to get involved in discussions about whether this is all just in your mind, or whether this is, I mean, you know, those are distractions. Our task is to figure out in ourselves, and it's something we have to do, ourselves, the is saying, it's in there, go take a look, discover it for yourself. You ha- Nobody can pull that thorn out for you. So our task is to, is to study what our meditation practice is about, learning to identify just what that is, what that impulse is, and how to not get sucked in. And of course, you really, you know, why is tanha so, such a, what's wrong with that? Well, the, Buddha, the Buddha's, uh, the, first, the uh, uh, first element of the eightfold way of being, or path, is right understanding. And it's usually, it's classically taught as uh, understanding the eightfold path, or the, the four noble truths. Understanding dukkha, its origin, its cessation, and the way of being that that uh, uh, brings its cessation. But it's also sometimes taught as anicca, dukkha, and anatta, the three elements of the uh, the three qualities of existence. Again, this is um, you know this is three qualities of existence. It's one basketball. It's one existence. It's not like anicca is separate. Anicca is impermanence, the Pali word for impermanence. Things are impermanent. We say, yep, thanks, but we're not happy with it. <laughs> no. Particularly when the stuff that's going on is the stuff we like. When the stuff that's going on is the stuff we don't like, we say, ah, this too will pass, and we, we're happy for impermanence. So it's just you know, clinging to the, what we like and being aversive to what we don't like. But anicca, impermanence, dukkha, and anatta. Anatta is, it's the real fun one. Nobody even knows how to translate it. It, it doesn't seem to me to be that difficult uh, concept. Um, the Buddha was talk, teaching in a context where Atman and Brahman were the same thing. We were just a spark of the transcendent ground of being. And the Buddha said, anatta. You make a negative in Pali by putting the A in front, in front. No atman. There's no fixed self. It's not no self. You know, we can the self exists as an idea of who we are. Um, and, and I don't like the term no fixed self personally, because fixed self, I can think of a glob of clay. Well, it's not fixed. Sometimes you can squash it this way, and sometimes you can squash it that way. So it's not fixed, but that's okay. I can, I can live. But the Buddha is saying, no fixed self in, this, in the sense that it's process. You know, if I use the word accident, an accident is something that happens over a period of time, maybe a pretty quick period of time, but it's not a thing, right? It's a process, something that, that happens but it still comes off as a noun as if it were a thing and this is the way in which elements of our language sort of delude us because we got a lot, in our language we got a lot of nouns and then we got some verbs that move the nouns around sort of you know but in in reality the buddha was saying anatta n- not no fixed self no n- I, trans- I, I think of Anatta's empty self, empty of, of selfness, of an entityness. There's no entity really anywhere. There's no thing anywhere, even though our language is full of things. You think of the most subatomic particle that flashes into existence and out in, you know, I don't know, I forgot to take high energy physics, but it's pretty quick. They don't last really long, right? And then you've got, you know, things that with animals with lifespans that are shorter than ours, longer than ours. There are things that seem to be things, but this chair that we think is a chair, these, the elements in this chair are just in process. They're just, just passing in this form. It's a snapshot. Some things happen so much more slowly, like the universe, which, what, 13 billion years to get to this point which is not so bad, 13 billion years, and look at what we're doing. Um, Pretty, it's, you know, consciousness, pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Galaxies that swirl in 100 million years, or 100,000 year swirls. But none of these things are things. Our bodies are, in what sense is your body the same body it was when you were 10, you know? All the elements are different, There's the chemistry's different, it lo- certainly looks different. But we apply a label and we think, you know, we apply the label. So the idea of emptiness is only that, that things are em- empty of any essential, they're, they're not things. You know, we got, we got uh, uh, Plato who said, you know, the real things are the things that are permanent and they're in the realm of forms and all this is just the, right? Didn't we get that? Things that are real are permanent. Buddha says, nothing permanent. That doesn't mean nothing real. It just means that, you know, if we're looking for something permanent, this self, we're different, you know? There's no two snapshots of us that are going to be the same. And yet, we, I mean, right? I mean, second to second, certainly year to year or decade to decade, you know, they're not going to be the same. And yet, we will abstract a self out of that. We'll create a concept. Self exists as a concept, but it's empty of any enduring essence. So, I don't like the term fixed self particularly because it, you know, you can think of a malleable self. Doesn't have a fixed form. Um, But really, the Buddha is saying everything interpenetrates everything else. We our lives depend on the atmosphere, the ecosphere. The ecosphere depends on the relationship of the Earth to the Sun, the Sun to the galaxy, and the galaxy to the formation of the universe. So we exist because of the Big Bang. We're directly without the Big Bang, we're not here. The iron that's in our blood was formulated in the heart of an exploding star. There's no separation physically. We're embedded in everything, and mentally as well. We think in English or some language that we learned, We didn't make that up. We just are a flow through for a uh, process. So the reason why Tanha is a bummer is because there's nothing to grab onto, really. Everything is changing. And so just when you thought you had things worked out, was, oh, is that Al Pacino movie? Was it Scarface? Was just, no, it was uh, The Godfather. Just when you think you got out, they pull you back in. You know? And so the Buddha's instruction, you know, the Buddha never, he wasn't making claims of anything. I think of him sort of, I, I, I may have used this this metaphor last time I was here, I think of the Buddha as a realtor. You know, when a realtor takes you to see a house, they say, you know, here's the pathway to the front door and there's the solar panels on the roof and there's the swimming pool and the granite counter. And, but you're the one who's expected to look. Buddha's like a docent. He's pointing you know, in the in the honeyball suit, uh, he's he's sitting out there in the in the uh, forest in the jungle, and a guy named Don, Don comes by, and Don Dupani is one of his cousins and not a fan. So Don Dupani comes out, you know, and he's on his walking stick, and and he comes ac- across the Buddha, and he's sitting in the in the woods, and he says. Yeah, what does the holy man teach today? Or maybe some some kind of challenge. And the Buddha said, I teach a dharma that does not contend with anyone. And Dhanapandi is reported to have walked away flapping his lips. I'm not sure quite what that meant. Mumbling? I don't know. But that's how it's described. But a dharma that does not contend with anyone. That means where there are no views that are asserted. If you say, my, you know, my dharma seems to me, so this is my take, of course. Uh, if you say, um, there's, there's no rebirth, that's uh, a fantasy. Or if you say there is rebirth, you set up some, you set up the possibility of contention. The Buddha's dharma is a teaching of pointing in for us, our, it's our job to find that thorn and his teachings are intended to help us find it but we're the one ones who have to pull it out ourselves a lot of the other part of the buddha's teaching was was the ethicization of of action at the time you were your dharma was your your duty and if you, know, if, you, if you read the Bhagavad Gita or other texts, you see uh, Nagarjana, uh, not Nagarjana, Arjuna is, is in, encouraged to go ahead and be a warrior because that's his, that's his dharma, that's his responsibility as a member of his caste. And in that time, it was better for you to do your dharma well, uh, it was better for you to do your dharma badly than to do someone else's dharma well your responsibility was to fulfill your role in the cosmos as it was defined in the social order. So the Buddha said, it's not what you do. It's what your intention is. For him, karma was intention. And so the elements of the, of the Eightfold Path about speech, action, and livelihood have to do with your intention in regard to your, uh, your experience. And those are the, those are the, and those are part of the of the four noble truths or the four ennobling truths. Um, they're not separate from, and they're not optional. It's it's like you don't get a basketball without the rubber and the air inside and the and the brown color, you know. You don't get the path or the way of being that that leads to the cessation of of suffering without all elements of the eightfold path. So our job is to understand dukkha and to free our, free ourselves and others in this it's sort of like on the airplane when they say you know put the mask on yourself before you put it on someone else you know because otherwise you could be until you see that freedom yourself, you could be teaching well probably not Scientology <laughs> but you know the the buddha was not teaching metaphysics we want metaphysics we want to know how things are and when it's taught you know the buddha taught how the way things are it means that he taught anicca dukkha and anatta that our existence our experience and our existence is impermanent evanescent a flash of lightning in a su- in a in a, a summer cloud that there's nothing in our experience that is capable of providing any lasting satisfaction. Because all things are empty of essence. Everything is, everything is in motion. It's all process. The Buddha was incredibly radical in this way. And the ethicization of, of action means that what he was saying was that living with, with more peace and more kindness in the world, probably not a bad thing. So I know people there are people poised to flee at 9 o'clock. So let me pause and offer an opportunity for questions about what I've been talking about, and uh, please. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.